When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will make you exceedingly numerous. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you, throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be your God and and to your offspring after you. God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you will not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall give rise to nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason, it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham. For he is the father of all of us, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Hoping against hope, he believed that he would become the father of many nations. According to what was said, so numerous shall your descendants be, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead, for he was about a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Therefore, his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now the words, it was reckoned to him, were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead who was handed over to death for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. Nice work. Thank you guys so much. See you in a little bit. Oh, you can just leave it. Look at that. You're like the consummate servant. So uh, I think, uh, I was thinking, well, we'll start here. I I think Teresa and I represented us as Montana Hicks well this last week. there's this new communion of uh, pastors that I've got the chance to become a part of, and this last week I get to, we got to fly down to Austin to do some kind of formal ceremony stuff, and I was quickly reminded formal ceremony is not stuff I'm good at, or as Montanans. Uh, my friend Chris, who's been instrumental in me, with me in this journey, he wasn't there, but he saw the picture, and his comment was hilarious. He said, Adam, I knew uh, you were my people when I saw your wife wearing her chacos. So that was the first step, which I, I didn't even think of. I'm like, well, why wouldn't you wear chacos? It's 80 degrees outside. And then the other part was I, 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 well, I said to him, I was like, but that wasn't even the least of it. Like, I almost had to get the Heimlich for the communion. I screwed it up royally because it was a little high churchy, a little bit formal, and I was first to go. 
I think I was second, actually. And I, the guy gave me like half a loaf of bread. It was, it was like five times the size of the thing that we get. But what I didn't realize is I've developed this habit, because I take it up here, but I, I have actually developed this habit of just like taking half of it. I actually like taking it in like parts. And I don't know if there's anything sacrilegious about this. Someone will have to tell me if there is. But I'll, I'll generally take half the bread and half the wine. And then I get down there and I kind of have my own moment. I take the other half. So the guy hands me the bread and I just took a bite. And then I got over to my friend John who was holding the cup and he was as out of place as I was and we instantly made eye contact and I was like, oh no, I'm supposed to dip. But then I could, all I could think about was George Costanza and I'm like, well, I can't double dip, like I can't do that. And then I wasn't sure if anybody else was drinking from the thing because it was the shared chalice thing. So we had this like awkward and he's like, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, this is so terrible. And, and then I remembered having grown up Roman Catholic that the, the uh, technically, you only have to take one for it to count is the way that it's often been said. So I was like, I'm just going to leave. And I, I just skipped the cup entirely. I went back to the front row. And then what I didn't, you know, I mean, I hadn't had saliva in my mouth for over an hour because I'm in this formal thing and I'm super nervous and I hadn't felt my legs from the waist down for an hour. And so I put the rest of the bread in my mouth, but it turns out for your body to break down bread, you need saliva. And I had none. And so then, if, I don't, I'm sure you've done this before, whether it's chicken or bread or whatever. So then I try to start swallowing uh, the bread, and there's that, like, you got to do that thing in the back of your throat to, like, cough it, like, regurgitate it like a cow, you know, so that you don't choke on it because you can't swallow it. And I tried that a few times, and I was like, I'm just going to have to, like, put this in the back of my mouth and let it slowly dissolve and then figure out what to do with all the bread in my teeth when we're done with this thing. And it was so not covert that when, when, when it was all over, my friend John came walking up to me. I was sitting in the front row and handed me the cup and he said, take a drink. <laughs> so like the hicks from the sticks are, are oh, it was so bad, but also so fun and meaningful. Uh, so this morning, I think it's fittingly simple this morning, uh, and I want to pray just in just a moment. Some of you will know, if, if you've been a part of this place, you may or may not know our friend Clint, who's been battling pancreatic cancer. He passed yesterday afternoon, so there's just that's part of if you're going like, man, this place is heavy and somber if you're a guest. I think we've been pretty good at living life together. But that also means that there are these seasons where things are heavy, and that's not to assume that all of you are relationally connected to them, and I'm not trying to leave you out of that, but just to say that I think part of doing communion together is there's this thing called death and loss, and it's real, and it sucks, and that's also what Lent's all about, is just sitting with the reality of death and anticipating the invitation of, of resurrection. So I'd like to pray, and we'll jump into the text. God, thanks for the cross. Thanks for Abram and Abraham, or who became Abraham. Thanks for Sarah, who became Sarah. And, and just, I don't know, Lord, it just feels a little sobering that to the extent to which we choose to live a life that's predicated upon the goodness of your character and your faithfulness to us, that we're joining with something, a movement, a family, that goes back several thousand years. And so, God, my prayer this morning would be that you'd, you'd help us find the intersection from our own lives and the heat therein and the simple and yet demanding task of finding you trustworthy. And God, for our friends here this morning who, they're just, they're not there. My prayer would be that they would feel welcomed, that they would feel this is a safe place for them, uh, that we won't rush them. And yet this morning we're, in, in some sense, kind of just swimming around in one side of the pool. So we love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 
So I've been excited for this week for a while because uh, some of you know that I'm type A and I, I, I like to prep months and months ahead of time. And so oftentimes I'm communicating around something that I personally studied and worked through as much as six months ago. But what happened this week, for this week was several months ago, I had scheduled a, a Jewish Christian man to be here and speak on Passover and the meaning of that. And this was the weekend he was supposed to speak. Well, somewhere around the first of the year, it occurred to me that that the timing of that might just not be good. Knowing that we were, uh, by the middle of January, dealing with two friends who, whose death was on, in some sense imminent, but we had no idea when. There was just, I just had this sense of, from God of like, we better cancel that because I would hate to be him here on this weekend if someone passes yesterday. And frankly, I would hate for you to have this foreigner, and, and, which is kind of weird that that's exactly how it worked out which is kind of God. So I said to him, like, say, we need to cancel that. Let's circle back later. And so what that meant is in the middle of January, while two friends were battling uh, ter- terminal cancer, I was studying for, for this week and just spending time in my own quiet times and reflection. And there was a particular verse. So there's some irony to me because last week we covered four texts from the lectionary and for the first time in my life kind of taught from four different texts. And, and this week we're just going two verses even though there's these four readings. Because what stood out to me even then, and, and it was actually, the, this will always be a special text to me because my friend Jim and I, this was the last significant theological, spiritual conversation we had. Because what, what occurs to me is, is part of what's going on here is this reminder, this prompt, this invitation, this kind of instructional tool that's something like this. Next slide. Like what, what, what if we're not just called to believe facts about God? What if we're called to trust God in the midst of specific stuff? And I don't, I'm not, there's no part of me that wants to trivialize the, the facts, the theology, the creeds. Uh, clearly, I think that stuff is important, maybe sometimes more so than it ought to be. I love that. I'll return to this idea. But I think that part of what Abraham does and what the lectionary readings do this week is remind ourselves that all of that stuff is useful to the extent that animates us in everyday real life trusting God, like specific stuff. Because one of the real hard parts about following God, I think, especially if you do it for a while, is, is you, can, you can make the trusting God thing very abstract. It's this concept out there that you theologically agree to, but in your everyday real life, you're just as anxious, just as worrisome, just as afraid as anybody else. And it seems like the intersection of our faith is taking these otherwise broad constructs and marrying to uh, them the, the real circumstances of life. And so my question to you, next slide, is what is it? Now, I, I don't mean to imply it being dark. Some of you, it's not dark. There's a new pregnancy. There's, there's, a, there's a wedding ceremony coming up. There's this new job opportunity. There, there, your, your kids are in this season and you're excited for them. It's not all dark and dreary, but what, what is it? What's the thing that's really challenging you to, to, to make tangible? So are you going to trust God or not? Like, is God's character such? Is God's presence such? Is God's availability to you such that you can... Like live into this differently because there's this God who's with and for, who died for and resurrected and all that power is available to you in your own experience of life. What is it? Uh, in, in the words of my friend Bob, who I do some spiritual direction with, like where's the heat? 
Where's the tension? Where's the struggle? What is it that might cause you to otherwise medicate through other things and addictions? Like, where's the opportunity to rescue yourself from these kind of massive claims about God and just go like, so do you trust me in this one or not? I think of Dallas Willard, I think it's chapter two of The Divine Conspiracy, where he says, uh, Jesus lived in a God-bathed world. Where is the opportunity for you to trust that? Because what stands out to me is just the simple brilliance of Genesis 17.1. Next slide. He just says this, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. When's the last time you've given consideration to this idea that it's relatively safe to say that every person in this room, whether you identify as Christian or not, knows more about God the God of the universe, than Abram did. It's kind of a sobering thought. Like, he, he didn't have the luxury of the Bible. He didn't have the luxury of the incarnation and the resurrection and a, a Jesus who came and taught. He didn't have access to the Sermon on the Mount or even the Ten Commandments. What does he model for us? Just trust. And yet, a trust that's not it might be simple, but it's incredibly demanding. See, scholars will tell us that this, this section, this story... Uh, this is part of what I found kind of entertaining and neat when I studied through this, that the author of Genesis, uh, somebody who's really steeped in the scholarship of the Bible and Genesis, what they see going on in this chapter is this is one of the Mount Everest of the book. Like for the author, it's like if you, if you had his modern version, his spine-bound version, this is the chapter that has the fingerprints all over it, the highlights, the circle, the markings. It's the part where the, the ears are most dogged because this is like one of the stories. And they would say that Abram or Abraham, this was one of those decisive moments. And I don't know if you have one of those. I'd love for you to have one if you don't. I know several people who the, the, they've been close to leaving God, but there's these clear moments that they just can't deny that God became real to them. This was one of those for, for Abram. And the reason they tell us that's the case, I didn't know this, but uh, apparently whenever, especially in, in the Old Testament, when there's a time stamp, that's the author doing something. It's like that's the equivalent of bold print. And three times in Genesis 17, there's a time stamp. Verse 1, next slide. When Abram was 99 years old. So we read to take that for granted. But if you read through his story, there's not many times where you're specifically given his, his age. There's another one. Next, next slide. Then Abram, then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Can a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? And then last in verse 24, there's another one. Abram was 99 years old. So, so why is this such a big deal? Well, Paul, interestingly, like, you know, obviously the number of Old Testament texts that guys like Paul and Jesus never comment on is, 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 is vast. But here's one that the Apostle Paul takes it upon himself to teach. And then if you believe the Bible's from God, which I do, that that was preserved by the Spirit for us. Listen to Romans 4, and, and Paul, I think, takes a swing at why this is such a big deal. For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And there's this question of, okay, so for Abram to trust God, what did that cost him? And we're not going to exhaust that now, but there's several things. He had to move. He had to leave. There's things he had to do, and then there's things he didn't do because he failed to trust. There's 
There's, there's a mess that he created as well, but then, but then there's this moment at 99 years old, he got to try and to choose whether or not to trust. And it's as if Paul is saying, hold on here. Let's not forget that one of the architects of our faith, the, one of the patriarchs of our faith, you could, all, you could all kill him in Bible trivia, but let's be clear about this. What makes him a patriarch was his ability to take a real-life tension and choose to live into, God, I'm all in on your trustworthiness on this. It's hard, isn't it? Like being a good theologian is way easier. Being a good student, living up here, I, I find it way easier. In fact, I was reminded this week that so much of our, our whole way we've organized ourselves as a church with gathering and scattering, quite frankly, it's born of my shadow. I, at 19, when I discovered the Bible, studying the Bible and reading about God and thinking about God and talking to people about God, that just came really, really easily for me. One of the things that I've always held within my own kind of vocational integrity is I know that, like, I don't read the Bible because I work for the church. I work for the church because I fell in love with meeting God in the Bible. And that habit is what kind of got me pulled into different ministry opportunities for better and for worse. And it wasn't until I was in my mid-20s, there's people Guys like early Rob Bell and early Brian McLaren who really awakened me to this fact of like, yeah, but all that only matters if it impacts the life you live. And so for us, the gathering and the scattering is this push against my own sense because I love a Jesus who just wants me to think and talk and explore and blah, blah, blah. But there's this reminder that a disciple at its core is not someone who knows a lot of stuff. It's a person who loves well and trusts God well. I just wonder if in the second week of Lent, the opportunity is for you to maybe just pump the brakes on all the sophistication, maybe all the things that confuse you, and just to identify something. Is God trustworthy? And here's the good news. You don't actually have to believe that he is to try it. Like, lots of people do things like that. So whether you're a Christian who's going like he is and therefore I need to attach this or, or you're not sure you are one, it's even all the more opportunity to go like, so, so live as though he is trustworthy and then discern two, three, four months or years from now whether or not you found that to be true. So what happened to me in all of this was as I was walking with uh, two friends who were, uh, there, there's just, there, was no, there was no happy ending for them. I mean, there is in terms of uh, resurrection, but they were both facing the same thing. And it was with my friend Jim, one morning, it proved to be less than two weeks before he died, that we had this conversation. And it was actually, I pointed him back to Genesis 17. Because in listening to him, what became clear was the only option he had was to wake up today and try to figure out what God wanted for him in that day and then do it. And, and, and he over and over explored, like, that, that's all he had. And so I was able to reference Genesis 17 and this idea of, I am the Lord Almighty, walk before me and be whole. Uh, the walking there, that, that phrase, just for what it's worth, it, it means, we can go to that slide, it means continually walking or walk continually. So it's kind of like baptism and Eucharist, like, 
Yes, we get baptized. Yes, that's important. Yes, that's a big deal. But the reason we take communion is it's a rebaptism. Because what we all know is you don't choose one day to be Christian. You don't choose once to be Christian. It's a repetitive decision. And that's what he's saying to Abram. Just walk continually with me. The blameless there, this was helpful to me that it actually doesn't have to do with moral purity as just commitment to God's ways. I think it's the same as what N.T. Wright explores when he says that sin in the Bible is not primarily a moral thing, it's a vocational thing. Like sin is a problem to the extent that it causes you to be other than who God calls you to be. But the bigger picture is God has someone for you to be wholly committed to God's ways, wholly committed to living into who he has for you. I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. It reminds me of just the principle of the manna. And I don't know if you've ever explored this. Again, this is just one of those like, our faith is not very complicated. Because one of the earliest, oldest lessons in the Bible is this idea of manna, a God who provided for Israel every day. And Jesus returns to this when he teaches people to pray. Pray, give us this day our daily bread. I think it's the same concept. It's about waking up today and shrinking life down to just today. And sometimes when I'm particularly worked up, the the game I play with myself is, Adam, do do you think you can do this, this, and this, which is what God's asking you to do today, and do you think you can just make it to bed and then deal with tomorrow tomorrow? And oftentimes the answer to that is yes. I think that's also why insomnia is like the worst, because if you can't look forward to finally sleeping when your head hits the pillow, that's all the worse. But what if that's the invitation And what if your life isn't actually that much different than Abram's? He's maybe not asking you to be the patriarch of the faith, but he's just going like, could you trust me here? Uh, One of the things Jim said, and I I don't want to make every Sunday memorial to him, but I shared this at the funeral, and I just, I wish I could get this like etched onto my retina because it's such a brilliant Jimism. He he said to me, I don't know how many times over the course of his 30-day struggle with the disease, he said, Adam, if I look up and I look out, then I don't get stuck in. It's an orientation around trust. If I seek like, God, what do you need from me? God, what do they need from me? Then I don't get trapped within myself. So I guess here's my question, and we're not gonna make this morning unnecessarily complicated. What's the thing? What is it? Where's the invitation? What does it look like for you to just go all in on, okay, God, if you're trustworthy, then, then maybe I can do this next thing. Maybe I can wait for you in this area. Maybe I can conquer this. Maybe I can just kind of live in the anxiousness of the moment, but somehow find peace. And maybe you even consider memorizing this verse. Just walk before me and be holy. This morning, we're going to give you a chance to do that also with communion. And if you choke, we won't judge you. Um, We'll have bread. There's gluten-free options over here. We'll have bread and, and, excuse me, wine and juice over here. And there's so many layers to this. I mean, to be sure, part of what we're doing here is living within our inherent brokenness. That at the end of the day, uh, we show up sick and unwell and in desperate need of God's forgiveness and his spirit. It's a confession of that and and his victory won at the cross, his forgiveness. And so part of the design of this is that you would hear the proclamation of God saying to you, you are forgiven. It's also this chance to, to make tangible 
what it means to, to receive God's Spirit, to live in His grace. And so I'd like to pray, and if you've never done it with us before, we'll, we'll get you through one row at a time. We just ask you to hold it uh, until we do a couple songs. And if you're wondering if you're welcome, the answer is to the extent that you're active in following Jesus, you're, you're absolutely welcome. And if you're not baptized, we, 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 should, we should do that. We should talk about that because that's, that's no small thing in the history of our faith. Let me pray. God, Jesus, we just, I'm just so thankful for the simplicity of like, come Holy Spirit. And God, we recognize that uh, that's the sum total of our Christian commitment and consideration that, that you are so big and so powerful and so real that you can send your spirit into us and by so doing yourself into the world through us. That we're not the end game of your grace, that it's not supposed to deadhead in us, but to move through us toward others in the world. Pray, Jesus, that you'd help us live lives for the sake of others. And then, Jesus, we ask that you'd send your spirit into this bread and wine, that it would make tangible uh, your forgiveness, your grace, and just your Holy Spirit. So come, Holy Spirit. We love you, Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us online at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook or Instagram.